I'm feeling some type of way, by the way. Uh, about the loss of the Eagles. So I, I kind of turn my focus away from them now. Not just because they're home watching the playoffs. So I kind of turn my focus back over to the Phillies. You know, I know not season yet. But I'm, it's, it, I'm nurturing hope. I'm nurturing hope. I got to keep hope alive. For my Phillies Philly teams. Paul said, yeah, whatever. <laughs> we got a new guy in the church today. His name is Paul. He's like, whatever. <laughs> no Dodgers. No Dodgers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. They're dominating. They're dominating. So, I want to make a quick joke. I, 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 can't, I can't keep it to myself. I can't keep it. It's not so much a joke. It's, it's actually a reality. And there's only a couple people, those up here, who are sitting in front. They, they saw what had happened. And listen, this is, it's an embarrassing moment, but, but I, I'm not scared. I'm not, as we say in Philadelphia, I'm not scared. So, look at it. Some of you saw my feet this morning, right? I had brown shoes on. You see what I'm wearing now, right? I'm gray shoes, right? Totally clashing, right? I'm wearing, I'm actually wearing two. Brother, <laughs> this is embarrassing enough. So I'm wearing Chewy shoes on. He actually had to go out to the car and give me Chewy shoes. So I'm over here earlier, right? I'm feeling this heat and I'm thinking, what's going on? Right? It's the anointing, right? <laughs> it's the anointing. And when I stepped away to go back to my seat, the soul came off of my seat. <laughs> the soul came off. <laughs> Jessica, please. So the soul came right off, Miss Cheryl. Can you believe that? I mean, the anointing welted, uh, mounted the glue. <laughs> and that's a warning to you men and women for wearing shoes 20 years old or more. <laughs> if you got shoes that are that old, listen. <laughs> it's going to be better time. Thank God I wasn't in, a, in some Walmart. Verse 1 established the context 
And verse 2 kind of gave us insight into how faith actually works. Or the context, by the way, is that there is no longer, that there is no condemnation for those who are, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And that's a glorious thing. That's the, the, the full weight of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the heart, in the soul, in the spirit, in the physical life of any individual, whether here in this church or anywhere outside of these walls, anywhere in this world. For those of us who have come to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, this is the mark, or this is the reality that exists within every single one of us. Namely, there is no condemnation. For you and I who are in Christ Jesus. And I think that's a glorious thing. Amen. Amen. I, I think it's worth noting every single time we gather together. Especially during a season in your life when there's some difficulties. Anybody with all difficulty in the church here today? No, I don't, I don't think so. We all have difficulty and sometimes our difficulties overwhelm us to the point where we lose sight of the miracle that has transpired in our lives in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. And then on the other hand, concerning verse 2, we have the finished work of Christ. We have the finished work of Christ and the actuating, one theologian referred to it as, we have the actuating presence of the Holy Spirit who is able able to keep us from falling. And of course, he touched on, we touch on the the doctrine of justification as well as the doctrine of sanctification. That is in this our disposition in Christ. As we live out our lives this out of heaven, we have the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives who keeps renewing us on a daily basis, who actually enables us to live a victorious life. The removal of condemnation was possible because God removed the curse of sin and death through the divine life he gave us in his son. The divine life we have been given in Christ Jesus. And who made that possible in our lives? The Holy Spirit made it possible in our lives. So, in a nutshell, Romans chapter 8 can be a highlight of the activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We have salvation because of the Holy Spirit. He's the administrator of the gospel this side of heaven. We don't have God in physical form or Christ in physical form here. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. But we do have the presence, the literal, tangible, we could put it that way, presence of the Holy Spirit. In my mind, the spirit world that exists around us is more real than this natural temporal world that we live in. Amen, somebody. That's how I see it. That's how I see it. So today, Paul continues with more information about how salvation in Christ actually works. Look at Romans 8, 3 through 8. Romans 8, 3 through 8. It says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, and indeed it cannot. Those who are, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. <laughs> those who are not in the flesh, those who are in the flesh, cannot please God. And the first point that I have for you this morning, if you are taking notes, the subtitle here is the law could not justify. The law could not justify. Look at verse 3 once again, please. It says, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, years ago, when when I read this passage for the very first time, immediately my mind went to one idea. There's something wrong with the law. Somehow the law was at fault. Somehow the law was incomplete or insufficient in some fundamental way. Is that the case at all? No, it's not. It's not the case. So the initial idea here is that God has done a great work. I'm going to get to what I just finished stating about the law in just a few moments. But I want to highlight this first particular point concerning the great work that God indeed has done. Notice that this verse begins with, for God has done. For God has done. And then the, it ends with the idea of God sending his son in physical form to die for us. And I think this is worth noting because it's the classic story of redemption, whereby Jesus Christ has declared us righteous. It's worth noting this. We're going to talk about the law and how it was sort of insufficient, but we cannot dismiss this particular point. John chapter 3, verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That the world through Christ might be saved. And so Paul begins this particular context, or this particular verse, with what God has done. With what God has done. Think about the fact that one day, long ago, he died on the cross for you and I. We talked about this once before, how there are so many people in society today actually deny the historicity of Jesus Christ. And yet when you do the number, you, when, you, when you do the research, when you do your homework, when you consider what the witnesses who were alive at the time, what they wrote about, their declarations and their writings, namely the Word of God, as well as extra-biblical sources, like uh, historians who were alive during that time, who did in fact write about Jesus Christ, the man-God, or the God-man, who actually walked this earth, you cannot deny the historicity of Jesus Christ. He was a man who actually lived, who actually came down, according to Tim mentioned this this morning in our prayer session together, in Philippians chapter 2, uh, that God had a plan 
for you and I. Not just you and I. God had a plan for all of mankind. And that plan included the salvation of our souls. <laughs> it took on human form and he died at the cross for you and I. For God has done. And then it talks about him taking on physical form. But, but what about the, the law in this particular verse? Because the, the, the verse says, for God has done what the law could not do. You can read that verse with or without the phrase, weakened by the flesh. Look at your text. It says, weakened by the flesh. And if you read that verse with or without that phrase, it will read like this. For God has done what the law could not do. And the first impression is that somehow the law was flawed. And that's not the case at all. That's not what Paul was saying. The idea is not that the law failed. There was nothing wrong with it. I want, to, I want you to go back one chapter. Look at chapter 7, verse 12. And I want you to see this. We have to clarify that there was nothing wrong with the law. Romans 7, 12. It talks about how the law is spiritual and holy. Romans 7, 12 reads... The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So the issue, the issue really was, according to Paul the Apostle, uh, in this text and other texts, is that the law did not have, and if you're writing down any notes, this is a good one to write down. The law did not have any redemptive qualities or efficiency. The, the law did not have any redemptive qualities or efficiencies at all. In other words, it could not fix us. The only thing the law had power to do was to expose sin within us. To reveal to us our nature outside of Christ Jesus. Our nature outside of God. We know that Adam and Eve sinned in the beginning. And as a result... Sin entered the world, but because they were our first parents, they we inherited this sinful nature. It's the reason why we do the things that we do from time to time, right? Like wearing shoes to church that are too old to be worn, really, right? That's sin. I reckon that's a sin on my part. Lord have mercy, that was so embarrassing. And then I got Michael standing behind me. He's like, dude, really? 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 How are those shoes? Anyway, anyway, listen to this. Listen to this. This is a this is a quote from John Murray. I have one of his um, perhaps a couple of his commentary sets. And he says this, he says, rather than depriving sin, this is about the law, rather than depriving sin of its power, the law provides the occasion for the violent exercise of its power. I'm going to read that again. Rather than depriving sin of its power, the law provides the occasion for the more violent exercise of its power. And I want you to see this because I know you probably think, what was he talking about? I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Quickly, quickly. 1 Corinthians 15, just one book over toward the end of your Bible. Just one book over. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want you to note the last clause of verse 56. 
Verse 56. That's all I'm going to read to you. The last clause of verse 56. It says, The strength of sin is. The strength of sin is the law. The reason why there's so much activity in our lives is because the law continues to expose our inadequacy. It exposes us. It doesn't doesn't eliminate sin. It doesn't deprive sin within us of its power. On the contrary, it strengthens its activity in our lives. And that's, of course, what Paul the Apostle meant by the phrase, weakened by the flesh. Go back to Romans chapter 8. And as you're doing so, I want you to listen to this because Murray, John Murray continues here with his quote. He says, to execute, to execute judgment upon sin to the destruction of its power, the law is impotent. I'm going to read that again. To, ex- to execute judgment upon sin in the, I'm sorry, to execute judgment upon sin to the destruction of its power, the law is impotent. It could not remove our sin. It merely exposes it and it strengthens it. So we need something more than just the law. And of course, number the third point concerning the uh, sub-point to this initial point is, listen to this, as a major consequence, the law could not condemn sin in the flesh, which was Christ's principal aim by his sacrifice. The law could not condemn sin in the flesh. And we're going to talk about that in just a little bit, which is the fundamental, the fundamental purpose of Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross, to actually condemn sin in the flesh. You and I are sitting here with a joy unspeakable. You and I are sitting here today with eternal life. You and I today enjoy salvation. And, and, and listen, I don't know about you, but my cup runs over. I'm excited about Jesus Christ because I value the fact that my sin no longer remains. I did not say that I'm sinless. I said my sin no longer remains because Paul the Apostle went to great uh, a great extent in six, chapter 6 and especially chapter 7 in saying that you and I in Christ are dead to sin. Right? Amen. Amen. We are dead to sin both in principle because of justification and in practice because of sanctification. We're no longer a part of the kingdom of the enemy over there in the sinful world. We are part of the kingdom of God. We are in this world, but not, but we're not of it. That's why Paul the Apostle and others say we're, we're pilgrims. We're just, we're just traveling through. We're no longer a part of this sinful, sinful world. We've been removed from it. The law could neither justify nor sanctify. This is, I think I mentioned this earlier. I read various commentaries, and Matthew Henry here writes. The law could neither justify nor sanctify, neither free us from the guilt nor from the power of sin. Having not the promises of pardon or grace, the law made nothing perfect. It was weak. It was weak because of our sinful nature. 
Galatians chapter 2 verse 16, um, you don't have to look it up, I'm going to read that to you. It says, yet we know that a person is not counted righteous by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because, here's the highlight, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And that's the point. The law couldn't make anybody perfect. The law couldn't make anybody righteous. It couldn't complete us. In fact, the author of Hebrews went on to say that the, according to the law, the priest would stand daily making sacrifices which could not make anybody perfect in the end. Just didn't do anything for sin. In fact, the Old Testament teaches that, or rather the New Testament, concerning the Old Testament, says that the blood of animals could only cover our sin, not cleanse our sin. And let's illustrate that really quickly. So, I used to write graffiti back in the day. I mean, did graffiti back in the day. Come on, be honest. Paul, come on, be honest. I know you did it. I don't know you, but I just got that feeling like you, like you had a really good hand. And the gentleman behind you, I know he did graffiti back in the day, too. You get right? No? You tell me later, right? So, if you put graffiti on this wall right here, it's nice and white. What becomes of the graffiti if I paint over? It's still there, right? It's just been covered over. It hasn't been cleansed. Well, let me tell you something here today, this morning. In the event that there's somebody here who doesn't know what the blood of Jesus has done for you, the blood of Jesus doesn't cover over sin. It cleanses sin. It removes sin. It removes the stain of sin in our lives. In fact, the Bible says it's not reckoned to us any longer. You talk about a clean slate. Amen, somebody. I, I think that's worth a, a, a hand clap to Jesus. Amen. This is what He's done for us. The second point, I subtitled it Futility of Religion. Futility of Religion. And I want to admit or concede that it may very well be an idea outside the context of this passage, but I want to entertain the thought. Nonetheless, because uh, I was thinking about what Paul was saying to his readers about the insufficiency of the law. And then I got to thinking about standards in this world, religious standards outside of Judaism, right? Or outside of Christianity. So Paul's readers were supposed to get the impression that, listen, you got to present that thing. Because it's not good enough. It's not sufficient. You need Christ. You need to take on Christ. But what about what about the religions of the world today who ascribe to a standard other than the Judeo standard, the law? Right? Isn't there something fundamentally skewed or something fundamentally wrong with any standard outside of Christ Jesus? Absolutely so. Absolutely so. And so I started to think along those lines. Consider Paul's audience. Who were they? Were they Jews only? No, not at all. Not at all. We can imagine what the Jews must have thought when they read this letter because Paul was constantly writing about the Mosaic Law. But what about the Gentiles? What were they thinking when they were listening to the reading of this particular text? The law was insufficient. 
But what about whatever ideologies they held to? Isn't it true that all manufactured religions are rooted in some works-based justification process? And we know that to be true. I lived my entire life prior to Christ Jesus, observing a works-based religious standard, believing that because there was some, some impact on my life, that I was okay. But there was no, the word is efficacy. Anything outside of Christ Jesus, there's no substance, there's no, there's, there's nothing fundamental, nothing about it that can fundamentally bring about the change that you and I experience here today. Which is, which is worth noting over and over. And I don't get tired of it. Sometimes some of you probably say, well, he sounds like a broken record. And I do it intentionally because I know what it's like to be in a mold or in a state when it conditioned as a believer where I don't, where we don't thoroughly understand all the mechanisms of, of this thing, especially things, deep things, deep theology like Paul the Apostle is laying out in chapters just like this one. And to walk through life thinking or not thinking that we're okay. Not knowing that as believers, we've been cleansed. Amen. I mean, this is a whole new leaf, a whole new book. You're no longer writing in the book of old. This is a whole new... Some people say, I've I, I turned over a new leaf. No, not as Christians. It's a whole new book altogether. Not just a page, it's a whole new book. I've been cleansed, I've been delivered. The power of sin has been broken from our lives. When we think about the removal of condemnation, as is the case with this particular passage, Romans 8.1, we must think only in terms of having been justified by Jesus Christ. Everything else is vanity. Every religion, every ideology, every standard, everything outside of Christ Jesus is vanity. Everything is vanity. Everything. Because religion does not deal with the fundamental issue of sin. And it cannot. Amen. Amen. It, just, it just cannot. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 3. Verse 3. Because this is uh, my third point here. Still with the same verse. But the third point is subtitled, Resolving the Issue. Resolving the Issue. And how did God resolve the issue of sin? Because that is the fundamental issue with mankind, with humankind. We are sinners. We inherited a sinful nature from Adam and Eve, and it must be dealt with. The verse reads, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. And notice the mentioning of Christ's physical body in that particular verse. It's the idea that that only God could remedy our sinful condition with the physical sacrifice of His own body. But there's a lot more to that. But I want to begin right there. I'm going to read that again. It's the idea that only God could only remedy our sinful condition with the physical sacrifice of His own body. The verse reads, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now what does that mean? We are the likeness of sinful flesh. I know that I'm a sinner, right? I'm saved by grace, but I'm inherently a sinner. Is Paul saying that Jesus took upon himself a sinful body just like you and I? Watch it. 
absolutely not. In no way, shape, or form. He took upon our human nature, void of the sin. We know that according to the Word of God, He was He was holy. He was undefiled. He was perfect in every sense of the word. In fact, I like what I like how the author of Hebrews finishes off uh, um, Hebrews chapter four. I just love. I think it's verse 15, 16, and seventeen uh, in the context of Jesus Christ being the great high priest, and because of his perfection, because of what he did for us, you and I can actually go before him boldly to find strength and help in time of need. And all of that because of his perfection. He was harmless. He was undefiled. He was holy. This again points to the wonderful passage of Philippians chapter 2. I think I'm always going to mention Philippians 2 uh, because I love it. Listen to Hebrews 10.5. Hebrews 10.5. It says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. But a body you have prepared for me. And this is worth noting. He had a physical body just like yours and I, except without the sin. He went to the cross. It was a physical death. He rose again. It was a physical resurrection. All of it required a physical body. Salvation would not be, would not exist without the physical body of Jesus Christ. And by the way, it wasn't just the offering of his physical body, it was a shedding of blood as well. Uh, although that you could possibly infer that from the offering of a physical body, right? The shedding of the blood. I separated the two thoughts because it's important to do so. What does the Bible say about the shedding of blood? Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We're talking about Jesus resolving the issue of sin. Verse 3, Romans chapter 8. He offered up his physical body. So by all of this, we know that part of the resolution process was the offering of Christ's physical body. However, there's more to this process. I would be remiss if, it, if I did not take this to the very next level, which brings us to point number four. And this point has to do with the fundamental component of God's redemptive plan. And if you haven't listened to anything I've said thus far this morning, you've got to listen to this particular part of the message. Point number four is God's judgment of sin. God's judgment of of sin. Look at verse 3 once again. Because the verse, there's a particular clause in that verse. It says, God condemned sin in the flesh. Sin was condemned in the flesh. Its meaning is, number one, God declared judgment on our sin. He condemned it. He poured his wrath Apart. It is the idea of God having declared his hatred of sin when he brought his wrath down upon his son, upon his son's flesh, and through his son's flesh, we have been blessed. Did you, did you hear that part? God brought down his hatred of sin 
upon the body of Jesus Christ, upon his son's flesh. It was a it was judicial judgment executed upon the power of sin in the flesh of Christ. And it was necessary in order to settle the debt that we owe. Go, go to chapter 6, verse 23. Just the first part, verse 23. Romans 6, verse 23. It says, for the wages of sin is... Come on, once again. The wages of the reward of the penalty, depending on your version, the reward of sin is... The reward of sin is death. Is it talking about physical death? It's included. For sure, it's included. But that's not the main idea. He's talking about eternal damnation. It's the penalty of sin. In other words, those in this lifetime who, for whatever reason, choose to reject Jesus Christ as a redeemer are going to end up, according to the word of God, don't fault me for it, are going to end up in a bad place. A very bad place. And the Bible is explicit. It's very clear that it's for eternity. What does eternity mean? Forever. It's forever. How do you say that in Spanish? Para siempre. Forever. Para la eternidad. Para siempre. It's forever. The judgment of sin. It is necessary. So, so we got to get back to the point. Condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus offered up his body. God the Father, because of the existence of sin and the need to settle the matter concerning sin in order for, for him to offer mankind, in order for him to offer humanity with salvation, he had to judge sin. He had to declare a judgment, a judicial judgment upon sin. And so the demand was, which was the only way that it could happen, God himself had to take on physical form. That he did is Philippians chapter 2. He had to take on physical form. He went to the cross and God declared judgment on the body, on the flesh, on Christ himself, on the cross. So that you and I can have redemption in him. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. The rest of the verse reads, But the free gift of God, this is Romans 6.23, But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John Murray writes concerning this, Sin's power and control was broken from our lives and in effect was taken out of the way. Amazing when I think about that. I, I was a dirty, rotten heathen. And so were you. And so were you. Right? And just think. I just love to envision Jesus on the cross. He's no longer there. And I know that. In my heart and my mind, I know that. But I revisit that all the time. Because... It's what it took in order for him to offer mankind salvation. A prediction many, 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 many eons prior to that. It was flowing through the annals of time. And one day, 
One day long ago, 2,000 plus years ago for you and I, Jesus Christ fulfilled those predictions. Mm -hmm. So many predictions about that. That horror. It was nothing short of horror when Jesus Christ endured on the cross. And this is intentional, by the way. And I want you to feel this. Because in, in offering us salvation, it's not just about the principle of it. That God died so that we may be justified. That's not just it. That's a shallow view of it. It's, it's, it's wonderful, it's glorious, and it's fundamentally true, but it's about our disposition as well. It's about the rest of our lives as well. It's called sanctification. He suffered the way that he did so that you and I can be saved, number one, and so that we can live a righteous life this, uh, this side of heaven. That's why I believe he shed every drop of blood in his body. He didn't have to. One drop was sufficient. I believe that. I believe that. But just think of the horror of the cross and what he endured for us so that we might have life and have it so we might have it more abundantly. So I'm going, to write, I'm going to read that to you again. Murray's thoughts in case you're writing and you missed it. Sorry about the uh, lack of PowerPoint. Chewy, he was away. Kind of dropped the ball this week, so. Murray writes, since power and control was broken from our lives and in effect was taken out of the way. It was taken out of the way. The power of sin broken and then completely removed. That means no more dominion over us concerning sin. We are free. No more death. It was disarmed. It was disarmed. No more blindness. The scales were removed. No more guilt. We have been given grace. Isn't that alone a wonderful thing? The fact that we no longer have this, this guilt that we have to worry about? Doesn't mean we are sinless. But I don't have this problem with that stuff anymore. I confess my sin. I'm intentional about that. I remorse over some of my mistakes, of course. Or well, all of my mistakes, rather. That, 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 that. Couldn't have left that statement alone like that. I remorse over all my mistakes. It, it, except when you know, things at home get a little trying and I gotta put my wife in her place. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, brother. That's not in here. That's not in here. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm joking, Paul. I'm joking, Paul. I love my wife. Uh, anyway. No more wrath. Think about that. No more wrath. We have been pardoned. We have been pardoned. We are now considered friends of God. We're no longer distant. We're no longer far. We are friends of God. He justified us and he sanctifies, sanctified us by taking upon himself our just punishment. And that, that is what is meant by the next, next verse. Which brings me to point number five. Righteousness imputed. Righteousness imputed. Look at verse four. Righteousness imputed. In order, verse four means, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And this is, of course, in the context of 
justification and sanctification. We were declared righteous and we were sanctified. We were set apart. We were set apart. Sin dealt with, sin removed, and we had peace with God as a result. This is the result of Christ's work on the cross. How so? Number one, the breach or violation of the law was fulfilled by the imputation. Put that word down on your notes or on the margin of your Bible. Along that verse, along verse 4. I'm going to read it again. The breach or violation of the law was fulfilled by the imputation of Christ's complete and perfect righteousness. A transaction took place. In other words, imputation means to ascribe or attribute something to someone. To ascribe or attribute something to someone. As in the case of one of you lovingly and graciously depositing $100,000 into my bank account without my having to earn it, which, by the way, I would appreciate very greatly, right? If one of you were to do something like that without having me earn it, that would be ascribing or attributing, imputing something of value into my account. And so when we think of imputation, when we think of this righteousness, this transaction that took place when Jesus died on the cross, when he finished the process, when he ascended on high, and the moment you accepted him as Lord and Savior, there's this immediate, instantaneous transaction that takes place. He deposits his righteousness, his righteousness, into your moral bank account. Thank you, Jesus. He settles the debt. The debt has been paid. It's been settled. It's been dealt with. So quit looking back. Stop looking over your shoulder. Stop putting all the scuba diving, scuba diving gear and, and, and going into the depths of the sea, fishing for your sins all over again. The sin issue has been dealt with. Justification. Jesus was able to successfully ascribe or attribute to us his righteousness by incurring upon himself the wrath of his Father. Again, it's a picture of the cross. A horrible, heinous way to die. Perhaps the worst way to die. Invented by the Romans long ago. And think of God the Father. Think of his wrath. The Bible says that everybody on this earth who does not know Jesus is a recipient of the wrath of God. That's what the Bible teaches. Because the sin in that person's life hasn't been dealt with. Just because Jesus died on the cross and just because he did what he did, it does not mean that everybody automatically is saved. That doesn't mean. Should I say that again? If that's not Bible. What is it? Universalism? That what it is? Universalism? It, it's not biblical. You gotta come to Jesus. You gotta be drawn by God Himself. The Bible says the Holy Spirit must draw us unto Himself. And when you experience that, there's nothing like it. And so as a result, number two, point number two, under this subtitle is a righteousness of obedience. Write this down. 
Do yourself a favor and write this down. It's only one sentence. It'll do you some good. Ready? A righteousness of obedience to the commands of the law is fulfilled in us. A righteousness of obedience to the commands of the law is fulfilled in us. Because of what Jesus Christ did. A righteousness of obedience to the commands of the law is fulfilled in us. I mean, think about that for a moment. I got five minutes. I'm almost done. But think about that for a moment. God gave man the law through Moses long ago. But because, according to Romans 7, because the law is spiritual, because the law is holy, because the law is perfect, and sin exists or resides in man, man could not fulfill the demands of the perfect law. So man fell short every time. That's what the Bible teaches. The law could only condemn after it exposed sin because of its holy spiritual nature and because of our sinful condition. The law condemns us, it doesn't perfect us. But it's still a demand upon our lives as a result of God's moral, morally established law. And it's the reason why the wrath of God exists upon children of disobedience. In other words, people who, don't, who do not know Jesus. Because the law is still condemning them. You need Jesus in order to come out from underneath that condemnation. You need Jesus. Amen, church? Amen. So, a, righteous, a righteousness of obedience to the commands of the law is fulfilled in us. Not by us, but in us. This is possible by the power of the Holy Spirit who writes the law of the love of God upon our hearts. And that love is the fulfilling of the law. I'm going to read that again. This is possible by the power of the Holy Spirit who writes the law of the love of God upon our hearts. And that love is the fulfilling of the law. And if you're writing down anything, that's Romans 13 verse 10, where it says love is the fulfilling of the law. Which, which, which gives us another and yet beautiful and the main the main element of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. It was the love of God. What's John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Everlasting life. It's the love of God. There are a lot of theologians that read a lot of different books, right? And I read one particular book where theologians were debating the unifying principle of the Bible. Go figure. The unifying principle of the Bible. And so there's a camp of theologians who actually believe that the unifying principle, the principle, the idea that brings it all together. Some theologians believe that the grace of God is a unifying principle of the Bible. Other theologians believe that the unifying principle of the Bible is the love of God. Which one would you say? Is it grace an extension of the love of God? Right? So how can grace be the unifying principle of the Bible? How can grace trump the love of God 
as a unifying principle of the Bible. I think, therefore, the love of God is a unifying principle of the Bible. It's what drove Jesus to the cross. It's what allowed him to allow man to, to <clears throat> put those narrow spikes through his hands and his feet. It's what drove God to impose or to the, that, that wrath of his upon the body of Jesus Christ. Why? So that you and I may have life and have it more abundantly. We have salvation afforded to us through Jesus Christ and what he experienced for you and I. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Love is the fulfilling of the law. And lastly, last point, this is just a minute or two. Point number six, also from verse four, is subtitled, True Believers. True Believers. And this, this idea, or rather, look at the verse, verse number four. It says, who walk, is the last part of verse four. It says, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Believe it or not, I don't have the time to get into this, but this is, is significant. There's a reason why it's in the text. This particular clause actually makes a distinction between true believers and non-believers, or rather believers and non-believers, or unbelievers. And the mandate from God upon every person who indeed is saved. In other words, those of us who are believers, we need to walk or live according to the spiritual principles of the Word of God, and not according to carnal principles, which sort of invalidate or bring compromise in our lives. If you, as a believer, go on to live your life however you deem necessary, apart from the principles of the Word of God, what's going to happen to you, naturally, in this world? What becomes of your faith? I mean, you're going to compromise yourself on so many different levels. And ultimately, you're not going to be pleasing God. You're going to be pleasing the enemy. Because that's what he wants. If he can't take your salvation, he's going to make sure that he cripples your faith to the point where you're not living it out. Then on a daily basis, on a regular basis, you're going to be living out what we often experience from time to time. That testimony that I shared about that, you know, dabbling in this and that, and somebody calling me out. Believe it or not, I needed that. I needed that. And I can take it a little bit further. When I was incarcerated, as most of you know, I was, two weeks after I was remanded to prison, I gave my heart to Christ. And I was serving the Lord the entire time. But one day, one day, because of my interest in sports, I allowed myself to get out of sports in my life to get out of hand. So I was going out to the yard, I was lifting weights. Then I would go back out to the yard the next opportunity, and I was playing handball. And every tournament that they established in the, in the prison of handball or racquetball, I played it. All of, so I spent all I was spending all of my time out there, and my faith was wavering, if you will. My faith was wavering. And then unbeknownst to me, I can tell you this crime. There was somebody I didn't know at the time who was observing, who was looking. Remember I made the statement once before that everybody has a conscience, even sinners? And they're on the outside of these walls, but they're looking in. They're looking into your affairs. And they're watching and they're waiting to determine whether it's genuine, whether, whether it's authentic or not. I got you. 
If you fail, oh wow, I need what he has. I need what she has. If you're in sync with the principles of the Word of God. And one day I went back to my, my book, and there was a letter, not a letter, a little note, with ready on my bed. It was the most humiliating experience ever. Because the guy says, the person says, I've been watching you for a long time. And I noticed that you were involved in this, that, and the other. But, I, but recently I've also noticed that you're no longer doing those things. You almost convinced me to become. And that was so horrible. You know what I did? And, and by the way, I, I'm, one day I'm going to bring it because I still have that piece of paper. I've had it 30 years now. 30 years. Because it, it's a reminder. I almost became, but you're no longer living the part, so why should I? And I got down on my face and my knees right there, and I wept, and I wept. And I went, can I get the worship team? And I wept like a baby. True believers who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This idea is about the distinction Scripture makes between a believer and a non-believer. We are not brethren in the faith because we attend church. We are brethren or brothers and sisters in the faith because we know Jesus. We are believers if we know Him. If we have been changed, and if we have the Holy Spirit residing within us. The last statement is, the description of a believer is one who acts according to the spiritual principles and not the carnal ones. Amen, somebody. Romans chapter 8, verse 14, final verse. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Stand with me, church. Let us give God thanks. Let us worship. In one final song. And I apologize for the extended time. It's 20 after. We're going to sing this last song. We're going to pray together once more. And then if you want to network, if you want to fellowship, I want to invite you to the breezeway here, just outside of this door, please. We do have another congregation that's going to be coming up afterwards. And do not forget, we also have our time together in prayer. This, this afternoon at 4 o'clock. Come on out. I promise you, you will not be put on the spot. I promise you um, that you will not be asked to pray out loud if you don't want to. If you're not comfortable with that, um, it's okay. It's fine. Just come out and be a part of the fellowship. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word today. We thank you for how you use it to reveal wonderful, wonderful truths to us about the wonderful fundamental truth this idea of justification and sanctification these things made a reality in our lives by your Holy Spirit this wonderful truth called salvation the redemption of our souls Father we thank you for it we praise you in these things we give you honor and glory by praying in the precious name of Jesus Christ and God's people say Amen
thank you so much for the wonderful eternal life you have blessed us with in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the sacrifice. Thank you for the pain. Thank you for all of it. As gruesome as it was, we thank you that by it you have granted us eternal life. We are among those who have declared faith in your Son, Lord God. And we thank you so much for it. We thank you for your love, your unconditional love. We thank you for your mercies. We thank you for your grace. And we thank you for the life substance of the Word of God, the power of the Word of God. We also thank you, of course, for the reality of the power of the Holy Spirit. The operation of the Holy Spirit in our lives, who, who was the one who quickened us to new life in Christ Jesus. We thank you for all these things, Father. We bless you. May you be with us, Lord God, as we go our separate ways. Watch over us. May you bless our meals. Uh, the meal that you're going to set before us. Uh, wherever it is we choose to go to eat. We thank you for that fellowship and the networking. Of course, that's going, going to take place. We thank you for the family members that are represented here. By those of us who are here. We pray your blessings on those who are part of this fellowship but who are not here today because they are ill. We pray your blessings on Miss Caroline who's at home and Michelle who they wanted to be here but we, we pray that you may visit them. That you may bless their physical bodies. So Ron, Morrow and Joyce that you may bless them physically as well. For my sister, my dear sister Eileen that you may visit with her in a very special way as well. Bring healing to her physical body and everybody else. There are number of individuals who are not here today because of a flu or the cold or some or they're sick to the stomach we pray that you may visit them as well Amen. thank you for our time in your presence we bless you Father these things we pray in Jesus name in all of God's people say Amen. God bless you, God bless you, God bless you it's almost it's almost 12.30 please remember we've got a congregation that's probably ready to come in here